welcome to the Art versus Commerce podcast. Uh, this week, it finally happened. We sat down with a stranger. Kind of cool that you know the podcast keeps growing, and I'm I'm now able to field people outside of my own circles, and uh, that's what happened. Sat down with Joanna Kelly. She's a production designer, originally from Australia, and she moved over here. Um, she has seven feature films under her belt now as a production designer, which is really cool, considering that. Back in Australia, she was not in the film industry. She was a designer, but not a production designer on sets. We go through her whole backstory. We hear all about that, the challenges that are involved in moving abroad. Not just moving abroad, but moving abroad and changing your career. Obviously, tapping into the talents that she had, starting from scratch on more than a few fronts. So we talk about that, talk about freelance slumps, talk about the lifestyle, talk about you know the ways that things work on set and how she came to understand them, which I think some of her tactics for doing that were really interesting. I, I really enjoyed hearing how she went about learning the craft on set, uh, which is something that I think a lot of us are put into positions to do, and there are many ways to try and be a sponge. So her ways were fascinating to hear. And she's also currently directing a feature documentary film that's about edible insects and that whole industry, which then led into a bigger discussion about climate change and the ways that that industry can potentially help um, the planet in certain ways. And so it was cool to you know hear all about that odyssey that she has gone on and the things that she's picked up and learned about that. And likewise, how that's informed her production design and just her overall understanding of the industry in general. And also a, a discussion that, that we had that, you know, I'm not clearly an expert on, but we discussed what it's like for her being a woman in the industry, the difficulties that it can bring. And it was in, it was an interesting conversation because it's obviously not in my wheelhouse, but it felt relevant and important to discuss. And she is passionate about talking about it. So it was it was a new a new area of discussion for the podcast, but one that I hope if we have more people that are willing to talk about it, want to talk about it, I know it's something that is affecting a lot of women that I know in the industry and outside of it as well. So it was kind of cool to head into some uncharted waters in that respect. But uh, all in all, just an absolutely great time. Uh, first one, first stranger, but uh, a stranger no more. So without further ado, Joanna Kelly. I think that designers are strategic thinkers and problem solvers and I don't think they're really represented that way often and I like giving designers a chance to talk about their practice and talk about how they're managing the hustle. Um, I think that lots of people underestimate the amount of work required to be a designer and or a freelance person and I'm very much astounded by that sort of thought and I think the more people talk about their practice and the more people talk about the side hustles they do to maintain the this sort of passion career, the, the better. At what point did you come here from Australia? And what were you doing in Australia prior? When I was in Australia before I left for New York, I'd been an exhibition designer at the National Gallery of Victoria, which is in Melbourne. Yeah. I had worked there for six years and I had just completed a master's degree in interior design that was practice-based and focused on audience experience in art institutions. So sort of institutional critique, how the structure or architecture and design of a space can influence experience in particular to do with art and fine art. Having spent four years part-time completing that master's and having spent six years at the gallery, I was beginning to feel like I wanted to see what else there was in the world. Yeah, I mean, six years is a long time, though. That was a salary-based... Full-time. Full-time, yep. and so... I designed 35 
temporary exhibitions. I manage the permanent display across two sites of the gallery. There are two sites in Melbourne. I wrote for the design blog. I did a bunch of stuff for them. So there was a lot to work with. I worked with some of the greatest artists, living artists around. It was a really wonderful experience, but I'm a very ambitious person and there's a lot I want to achieve in life. Well, at a certain point, I'm sure that six years is long enough that this is great and then it gets, no matter how great it is, it gets old. Exactly, exactly. You know, I love film. I'd spent my life But none of what you were doing was film. Absolutely not. No. No. In my undergrad, which was also a design, interior design graduate program, there were various subjects that were elective subjects. And it's funny because I didn't even notice till long after my master's and as I was beginning my filmmaking career in America, did I realize that half of those classes I took were avid editing, you know, photography. That was all all by just pure interest that you had in it? Yeah. And I think that as a designer, my interests really span a broad spectrum of sort of design in the world what what was it about design because design is just so it can be so broad until you pick your path what is it about you that design is the way for you well the funny thing is I honestly never felt like I actively chose my path until I came to America I started out the first when I finished high school I took a year off I did a year of fashion school. At the end of that year, I went off to Paris and I decided that this was my life. And as soon as I got there, I realized that fashion was not for me. I was far more interested in much bigger, grander statements. And that sort of translated into a more architectural arena. So I went back to Australia and I commenced the interior design degree. And I honestly, at the time, wanted to be a furniture designer, maybe. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I just thought, well, you know, I'd like to go to university. I come from a family of academics. This seems like an easy way to study something that I'm interested in. And I've always been really interested in art, very, very much so, but never really drawn to an artistic practice. And so design seemed like it sort of combined my multiple interests. Yeah, well, I guess in that sense, the broad nature of it was beneficial. Oh, and then the broad nature of the course I did, which was interior design at RMIT University in Melbourne, is really what I think made a huge impact on me. It offers every sort of aspect of design you can consider during those that four-year degree. And so suddenly I realized that being an interior designer wasn't just an architectural thing. You could be an event designer and design yeah. those spaces. You could design stage. You could design, you could be a visual merchandiser. You can be a furniture designer. You can be a stylist. Like it really exploded my concept of what a designer was and what you could do with the same skill set. So when you got to like the six years and you knew that you were going to, that you wanted to leave, am I gathering it right that you decided not only am I going to try film, but I'm also going to do it abroad and I'm going to do all of that in one fell swoop and I'm going to start from scratch in a new place with not a background in what I was doing prior. Is that right? Yes, that's a, that is a fairly accurate description. So um, where'd you get the, the courage to do that? <laughs> well, in the final year that I spent in Melbourne, which was the year I spent finishing my master's degree, I spent two weeks finishing my thesis in LA. Okay. I I ducked off for two weeks to LA to to finish writing my thesis. Melbourne was stressing me out at the time and I took a two-week study leave. I just happened to fly to LA during that two-week study leave to complete the thesis in Los Angeles where my friend convinced me it would be much easier to concentrate. Mm. And although it sounds crazy, it it actually was. You know, I didn't have any friends or family or issues or work or anything bothering me. Well, yeah, 
That makes sense. For for someone that lives there, it's a crazy place. But for an isolation moment for someone not from there, I get it. Yeah. And the crazy thing is that person was John Kassab, who's an established sound designer and film producer, also an Aussie, who I met crashing a cinema course at Melbourne University. A friend of mine said, hey, I don't think anybody would notice if you started showing up to this. It was a lecture, a weekly lecture and film screening. And so I just started showing up and nobody did notice. And I didn't get a degree at the end but I feel like I got my free money's worth out of the course well, for that's sure. Good. Yeah. So John Kassab became one of my best friends and he was the one who was living in LA at the time and suggested if I was having trouble concentrating on finishing that I should come over. So while I was out in the beautiful Laurel Canyon we would spend 14 hours a day him doing sound design on a project and me doing my thesis. At nighttime, we would go out for dinner with his various filmmaking friends, directors, writers, producers. That lit a fire, huh? It lit a fire. They all grilled me. They were like, you're a total film nerd. Whatever are you doing in Australia working at the National Gallery? You need to start making films. And so with that, that friend base that you've built in that time there, why would you not go to L.A.? First of all, very practical reasons. My best friend lived in New York at the time and said, you can come and crash on my couch until you find an apartment. So pretty appealing. The LA people were scattered doing other jobs. So I moved to New York. Plus, I'm very comfortable in New York. You don't need a car in New York. It's a lot easier to sort of settle into American life, I think, in the city of New York. That's interesting. I feel like that's personality-based. Some people, it freaks them out, but for others, you're well-suited. Yeah, I think as soon as I got to New York, I realized like, oh, these are my people, this is my city. That's good. Yeah, I don't think it actually is that It really is hit or miss for people. Mm -hmm. Well, no, but the people that it grips, it can grip for a lifetime. Yeah, I came over and I I started in New York and the film, basically by this stage, John Kassab had told me that another friend of ours who's a writer-director, Ted Marcus, had written a film and they were planning on making it. And they were planning on making it that year, the year. And that was pretty much what, that's what gave me the courage to come over. It was the chance that despite having no experience in film, somebody knew me well enough to know that those skills were completely transferable. And that you would have a job. And that I would have at least one job. One job. job. Well, because I was going to, but that one job, you know, from a freelance perspective is also, you know, 20 contacts or however many people are on crew. Because I was going to ask, because I've lived abroad too, and I understand like, you know, forget just trying to figure out your, your place somewhere, but then also needing to get into not just community for social region reasons, but for also professional ones. Like if you could describe outside of this one job that did give you some sort of leg up, like the challenges that you faced in in trying to figure out how to be a member of a freelance community. Yeah, absolutely. Well, funnily enough, it turned out as happens in film, that film got bumped repeatedly at three month increments. So suddenly the film job that I thought I had, yeah. Yeah. So suddenly the film job that I was comfortable moving across to the other side of the world with that I thought I had. Got you here though. Yeah, but it wasn't really there. And so extremely fortunately during the prep process, um, during location scouting, I met another person, designer, art department person who thankfully sort of took me under their wing. And when we got official word that the film, it's like Lambs, that's the film that I keep referring to, by the way, it just premiered at the Atlanta International Film Festival and also the Boston Film Festival. Mm -hmm. When we realized that wasn't shooting till the end of the year as opposed to the beginning of the year, he said, hey, I know you just got kicked off and so you don't have a job. I just got another job. Do you want to come work on this film in Rhode Island? Thus, 
sort of began my East Coast connections. So I, I built a bunch of connections on them. And then later in the year when we shot Like Lambs, uh, we shot that in Massachusetts. And so suddenly I just had a very northeastern base of people, connections. I learned all the things that I need to know in my field. So I learned the laws revolving. Well, that's what's kind of great about a feature. If you have people that are willing to keep you to hire you, it's not like a one day commercial shoot. Like by the time the feature is done, because how long were, were, was the shoot? How long did it last? Like Lambs actually took me about three months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, by the time you're done with that, like, you know, your job. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you can grow experience in terms of working with other people, working with different aesthetics, working with different content. But still, like you understand how the concrete's mixed. Exactly. Even little things like when you talk about starting a new career, like the freelance thing wasn't daunting. Learning the lingo on the walkie talkie is kind of daunting because my <laughs> first day, my very first day on set, someone just threw it at me and I was like, okay. Well, that's how it's funny. People's like experience check with jargon the assholes more than more than most but yeah no you get that um and even even the jargon changes between here la london Mm -hmm. it's funny i think we had a shoot in london and we spent like an hour during lunch just asking each other what the nicknames were and how they differed and it's fun but it's also daunting especially when your livelihood is depending on it yeah so you're building your your freelance base were you going from one big project to the next or was it also were you like doing day pickups and smaller things and like doing that kind of life or really as a production designer you kind of like got into the feature world and stayed strangely enough i did the opposite trajectory to almost every production designer i've spoken to it is i'm very very honored that they trusted me with their baby and i'm thrilled that they were cognizant that though the skills that i had were transferable well i mean we are talking about six years at a major museum like you know you'd be surprised how little that seems to register with people here i'm not sure if it's because they don't understand the magnitude of the job or the place because you know i've managed multi-million dollar projects and i have people asking me if i know what like how to write a budget like yes I've managed budgets for multi-million dollar projects. A very small job where it comes in for a few thousand dollars is... Well, it does take people, you know, it's a risk-averse, fear-induced industry sometimes, depending on who you're working with. They get scared at the fact, well, had she worked in film before? And then when you say no, it's like, well, why'd you hire? And they have that in the back of their head. But you got to find people, and you did, that were willing to hire you anyway. And I mean, that's... Yeah. And so that led to what? Oddly enough... I just did feature film after feature film after feature film and it's taken a lot of convincing of other people to let them know actually I'm very interested in doing music videos I'd love to do a commercial here or there and so getting getting pigeonholed has been a problem Oddly enough, yeah. And those jobs, working on a feature film, is it's a big job. One particular year, I did four films in one year. That That's wow. too much. That's really an unmanageable, I think, load for somebody who's a department head, I yeah. think. So I had to sort of learn how to navigate my way in a trajectory that isn't common to the field in general. I had to suddenly... Well, it's funny because most people, they get they arrive at features. So like falling back to pick up a music video here and there is like going back to the world in which they started. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you leapfrogged it and I, it was hard to ever do it. Well, to me, it's just, I see things in a very different way. I see projects as creations that I want to be a collaborator of. So who's making it, why they're making it and what they're making is super important to me. And some people are making commercials for things that I think should be said, like just because it comes in a commercial format sure. doesn't mean it's not valuable. No, there's powerful stuff there sometimes. And same for music videos. I think music videos 
those is just the most wonderful combination of all things filmmaking and art making. I really love it. I think it's also important to just have smaller jobs that you can do so that you can come off the back of working the insane hours that a feature film requires, which for anybody that doesn't know can be upwards of 100 hours a week. You don't want to do that for three months and then get on another ride to start again. No, no, no. And a lot of times it's kind of nice to like have a week of, you know, intense concentration on one thing, have the shoot that weekend and then be done with it and like be able to just walk away from smaller shoots are good, I think, for the brain in that sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And it gets you thinking in different ways. The more people you work with, the more perspectives you get on how to light a scene or ways to stage the actors, you know. Right. I mean, and that's what I was saying, even though you did a feature to start and after three months, you like knew the job, but that's only working with one director and one DP and one way of lighting and one way of doing all of the aspects of filmmaking. And I mean, I'm curious because it did sound you did hit the ground safely. Uh, was there a singular moment where you felt like this is going to work out and I'm not going to like th- the fear of having to go back to Australia? You know, I'm sure it was strong, maybe even still, but like the feeling of like going home, it didn't work out. How did you deal with that? And has it subsided? And if it did, when? It's terrifying. It has completely subsided and it's wonderful to be on the other side. Now the idea of returning to Australia is sort of something I look forward to. Yeah, (laughs) because it's it's on your own time. It's on my own time and by my own decision. Yeah. But the thought of going back tail between my legs was terrifying. I'd have to say at least 50% of people around me thought that it was ludicrous that I I would move to America to start a career in Hollywood when I already had such a successful established design career in Australia with a very prestigious place and and great contacts and a great deal of respect. From the outside, you were leaving a dream job. Yeah. It's fair to say. It is fair to say that. Yeah. But it's only your dream if it's your dream. And my dream, it no longer was. My dream had become to be a filmmaker and work in film and learn about filmmaking. And unfortunately, the Australian film industry is just very small, very hard to crack and not really ideal for me. So although it was scary moving to America, the insane amount of opportunity here in the film industry definitely alleviated some of that. Yeah. But I have to say, so the first year went great. I did my two feature films. I felt very confident. I went back to Australia that Christmas like a hero. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was thrilled, you know. Everything yeah. had worked out great. The next year in America was really hard. Sophomore slump. Yeah. Suddenly, you know, you expect when things are going well that it's a trajectory. It's going up. Things will continue to go well. Yeah, welcome to freelance humble pie. Yeah. So I basically, the next year, I would have spent almost six months unemployed. Not only is that a financial burden, it's a really more of a psychological problem. What were you doing during that time? So the good thing is I'm really self-motivated. When I came to America, it was to be a filmmaker And that was on my own terms. I spent that time writing a feature film narrative that hasn't been made yet, a television series that hasn't been made yet, developing concepts for music videos that haven't been made yet that I would really like to collaborate with people on. So I didn't, I feel like you can, you decide how you experience life. That's that's my kind of philosophy. So while I could have gotten depressed and honestly, it was a very fearful place not having money incoming. Yeah, New York costs a lot. It costs a lot. And I was quickly plowing through the savings I had brought in preparation for this time. But when you're actually living that and watching the money just go down and down, it's it's really hard. Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. 
So I think the you, biggest thing was the psychological problem. Do you know what I mean? So managing to wake up and not feel let, defeated. Yeah, not yeah. let your brain go there because you don't have to. If you're if you wake up in the morning and feel defeated, you're not going to get a lot of productive stuff done that day. Not at all. So when I felt bad, I would talk to friends. You know, also just establishing friends in this city can be hard sometimes. As a filmmaker, I make the best of friends, almost family for three months, and then everyone flies back to their cities, and I never see them again. Yeah. Basically, it was thanks to those connections that I had made previously. That film, Like Lambs, really created a huge social network for me. And in fact, a bunch of the people that I worked on it with are still my collaborators today. And a bunch of us made a writing club because we were all kind of unemployed at the time. And we would meet once a week to talk about what we had written. That's when I was working on the TV show. And at some point we decided, oh, we saw a competition for a Mountain Dew $10,000 video competition. And we realized rather than just bringing our own things to this writing club, maybe we could just collaborate on writing a project together since all of us are unemployed and not really doing anything. We could make a short film and maybe that would give us some sort of something. Yeah. $10,000 ideally from Mountain Dew. Yeah, yeah. Of course, we didn't win the Mountain Dew competition, but we did manage to write, shoot, edit, and completely deliver the film within two weeks. Zero budget. So suddenly I realized, oh, maybe I've been aiming too low here. Maybe actually... Instead of just writing it, you should just be making them? Well, you have to start with writing, but... Well, you know, but... Yeah, the concept of... Taking it further than just putting it on paper. Yeah, I mean, everybody tells you feature films are expensive. Feature films require a lot of money and people and resources and stuff. But what they, I think, underestimate is how much you can do alone. Well, not alone, but with your community. Right. Then the work picked up again and all of these... Well, I was going to say, well, during this period, I, I understand that you were keeping busy with creative things, which is great, valuable. Were you doing anything to actually try and get work? Oh, yeah. Like what? Uh, I, I still do this regularly, at least once a week. I'll look on any of the sort of job finding sites for filmmakers like Mandy. Dot okay. com, something okay. like that. All Staff right. me up. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like the, the feature world probably plays that game more. Because the commitments are longer, which I would also mean that the breaks can be longer too. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's no harm in getting your name out there. You should, I basically apply for a job to work on a film or whatnot once a week. Literally, I, I would send at least, I would guess 500 times a year at least. Yeah. <laughs> A resume, a cover letter specifically tailored to the, the job details. Yeah, and I guess that's that's the production designer aspect. Exactly. Because I think that, that does change. I don't think DPs are doing that, but we're doing our own thing. It's, it's just different. That's fascinating, though. And I mean, interesting that you could have multiple features on under your belt and you still... Seven need to now. Do seven, and you're still sending out just yep. as religiously. Yep, just the same. I think that people think that you only apply for jobs you want. Not true. Apply for all the jobs. It's the people that you meet when you get to go have the interview that perhaps can put you in touch with somebody else or tell you that that spiel you read was misrepresenting their project and actually the project is this, this and that. And, you know, there's so much room for negotiation and creation of your own work and your own workflow and your own department. So now that you have like seven seven features and you're working with so many different different filmmakers like what ha- what has that learning experience been in terms of trying to work with people that have different aesthetics and obviously you're bringing your eye and talent to things but then the, the collaborative aspects like how to, how has that evolved for you how have you gotten better at doing that kind of type of thing it's a good question 
Differing aesthetics is difficult for any designer-client relationship, I think. I think that it's even more difficult when you've done as much research and study into design and aesthetics as I have. I've spent eight years at design school, so I've got a pretty overly confident sense of my eye and my aesthetic. Making a film and being a designer in general is 50% that, 50% understanding your client's aesthetic and your client's goals. Like the director. Correct. Yeah. Or the writer or the producer. Right, I've right. worked on films where the director had no say and it was clearly one producer's film and it was huh. that person who really was running the show. So I think it's a matter of figuring out who the client is, which is difficult sometimes in film because it's not always the director. Yeah, that's that's the politics of the, of the film that you're on. Mm-hmm. And also film has a huge hierarchy, which is something that leaving the gallery, the National Gallery, I really thought that would be sort of the end of oppressive hierarchies and then I... <laughs> <laughs> That's human nature right there. I strolled right into what I think is probably one of the most hierarchical industries around too, you know. It's very much mm. a ladder and you very much are expected to pay your dues and work your way up the ladder, yes. I think. In terms of differing aesthetics, I think if you can present why, you know, it's about describing the reasons behind decisions and about invoking the spirit of the project you're working on. If it's a character's apartment, it's that character who is deciding those things. And I really love when filmmakers get on board with that and acknowledge that and can sort of approach it from that take. It gets more complex when maybe somebody has a an idea of how the whole film should look and then they get a bunch of locations that don't suit that aesthetic mm. and then they have a limited budget which can't completely change those locations and things start to get complicated. I just think it's important to always bring it back to the story, the narrative. What are you trying to say? I talk visually. I'm a visual person. That's that sort of I'm assuming that a lot of people listening are directors or DPs what kind of what would you like them to know about the relationship that they have with the production designer that you think might be that would make them better at having their conversation with you because I mean you know I think we're, we're, we're finally getting into a realm where maybe it's just my own mindset that the gear matters so much less than either obviously the lighting but then beyond that it's like give the budget to the production designer because if they make what's in the frame look better then you look better exactly um, yeah it took some time to get there Uh, you know I think a lot of young people come in hot on the gear but then you come to this realization what do you hope out of that conversation with them like what do you what what advice would you give to maybe the younger directors DPs in terms of how to work with a production designer what would you like to mold out of your out of a out of a young person i would definitely suggest hiring somebody you actually trust to carry out your vision i think the most important mm. thing is trust if you don't trust that person you're never going to get what you want out of them because you need to empower your crew i feel this way for all crew members including pas i've worked on films where the crew was empowered and i've worked on films where the crew was considered every member was considered a pa to to a director or a producer's vision. And I think you and I and our audience knows which film crews worked better and which didn't. Yeah. If you empower and entrust people to be good at their job, they're going to do it 10 times better. They really are. Well, yeah, and I think it's also naturally like from being a director, I want to hire people that I actually like their work because sometimes, you know, if we're in a, if we have a something that we're not agreeing on, I might side with you because I hired you for the aesthetic that you're bringing. And I mean, that's that I mean, that's nuanced. And I mean, it's hard to extol that advice to someone, but it's it's like, what do, what do you feel like the biggest challenges for you are 
or have been in your features, either like at each stage of, of, the, of the production? I think that uh, production design is really underestimated, the cost, the time, the resources. Mm. I think that people think it's something they can get away with, that they can steal a shot. You know, I've worked on very many low-budget films and if you disregard that, what these people don't seem to realise is they're disregarding the film. Production design is what the audience sees. It's it's yes. the set. It's not just the set. It's the creation of the characters. It's the creating a reality that belongs in that world. Yeah. Depriving a designer of money, resources or people to accomplish that look is going to end up affecting your, your film. I think it's critical to get somebody on board at the beginning, just like you wouldn't, you know, st- plan a feature film without having a director and a director's vision. I, I don't think it's appropriate to do that with production design either. And I think that the, the thing that never ceases to amaze me is how people underestimate design full stop, not just in film, but when people ask for something, oh, you know, yeah, we're just going to change the, the shot for today and actually we're doing an entirely different location what that says to me is you have no concept of how many props are involved how our week has been structured how the truck has been packed like yeah there's such Hmm. a there's such a huge list of things that that impacts sometimes it's necessary and sometimes it's not and I think the most critical thing is to respect department heads as equal on a film set if a lighting guy tells you that set's not going to be ready for 10 minutes you never hear somebody say, too bad. I mean, you do, but primarily they'll go, okay, 10 minutes, sure. When production design will come forth and say, oh, something's wrong, oftentimes they'll be like, that's okay, play on. And most of the time what that means is you've suddenly jeopardized continuity. You've jeopardized the reality of the world. They're going to be upset about it in post. Exactly. Yeah. And oh, my one of my favorite jokes when that happens is to say, oh, cool, I guess you'll fix it in post. <laughs> because the reality is you can't fix a lot of things in post and no. it's extremely expensive to do so if you can. No, that is fascinating. And I mean, but how, how do you, do you try and have that discussion with people or is it more that you just, to- like they either have that in mind or they don't? Well, I think earlier, maybe before we started recording, we were talking about sort of, what, what I've learned and what we've learned after a few years in freelance. And what I've learned is to avoid working with people like that. If, the red flags, yeah. Correct. It's pretty clear. Half the battle is making sure you're getting into the car with the right people. That is right. Yeah. That is right. And of course, you can't make that many assessments like everybody's interviewed a flatmate that they thought was great and then they moved in and did yeah, something. No, yeah, no, we all make mistakes. So the hiring process and recruiting of crew in general is, you know, fraught with with red flags but I think you know establishing sort of how you want to work together or establishing a workflow I'm really anal I come from a design background I have spreadsheets for everything (laughs) they are google doc spreadsheets so you too can look at what I'm up to you know what I mean yeah I think being transparent being organized and being open to other people's opinions are the most important things in general yeah so what's the matrix for how you're selecting your work wow it's a combination partly sometimes i just need to pay my rent amen it's new york city indeed partly it's people that i enjoy working with and who even if the actual project isn't ideal i'm just happy to see their smiling face in the morning and i know we're going to have a fun day and i also don't 
again, don't think you should underestimate working on projects that maybe you don't think is a great script or maybe you don't think is headed in the right direction because learning what not to do is just as valuable as learning what you should do. Oh, sure. There's no way. You can't you, you can't spot a red flag until you've had one like jam through your eyeball. Like there's just, you know, that's just the nature of it. Totally. But in an ideal world, I'm a writer at heart. So I read the script. The script makes a big, big, huge, huge influence on whether I choose to go with a project or not. The 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 premise, the concept, the dialogue, which? All. 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 Because... So even if you see a really cool opportunity for really cool production design, but the dialogue is average, you're, you're out? Potentially, Potentially yes. Yeah. It'll never get seen. If it's not a good film, the fact of the matter is... I'm interested in working on projects that will have a shelf life that I'm happy with. Right. If something comes out that I think looks terrible, I don't want my name on it. That's not useful. Right. Because even if the production design looks good, but it's it, you were involved in a in a mediocre project. It's a mediocre project. Exactly. I, I exactly. And I think it lowers the production value to have bad acting, bad dialogue, bad lighting. It. Like I tell, I always try to make friends it can with mask gaffers. Your, it can mask your work. Correct. And bad dialogue, it represents a bad script. If somebody's a good writer, they're a good writer. Yeah. They're good at writing dialogue. So uh, you, I cut you off, but talk about your relationship with gaffers. Because I would imagine, you know, if the DP, look, there's director is in the, is in the, the terminology, right? Director of photography. So I would, in my mind... The gaffer and the production designer are the two that are like his, and I mean this with respect, henchmen. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, then what's your relationship with that other counterpart in that equation? Usually pretty good. Listen, for some reason... <laughs> That's I, a funny way to... Okay. For some reason, I get along extremely well with gaffers and sound people. I don't know if it's because of the mutual interests that lead us to these careers. Those people are people that care about the details, and I'm a big picture slash detail-oriented person. Gaffers I love, they make me look good, and they make me look bad. So I well, want to make... It, well, I'm, it goes both ways. Yeah, it does, but my stuff's always great. Man. Oh, all right. <laughs> Um, but seriously, on, on the first film that I worked on, which I won't name names, which I really didn't enjoy so much the experience of production, mm. I realized like, hey, this is a feature film. You're going to be here a little while. You better find something to make this not a horrible experience. Like the, the, the onset collaboration was poor. A whole, the whole thing. There Everything were so about many it. issues. It was, this was your learning experience. This was my learning experience. And the good thing that I learned was if I'm not going to enjoy myself, I'm going to learn something. <laughs> so <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, but that's a nice way to take your lumps. Exactly. So I, I hit up the gaffer and I was like, what's that light? What does that do? How does that work? Do you mind if I irritate you and ask you 5 billion questions every day of this shoot so for the rest cool. of the film? And he was cool. He was a really decent guy. And he basically said, sure, I, I got the time. And learning about gaffing is tricky. Usually to do it, you need to get on the G&E team. You need to be yeah. a pretty strong person who can carry and lift and move a lot of heavy things at it's, the drop of that. It's hour. hard labor. Yeah. They bust so, their ass. Absolutely. And so it's not really a field that I'm interested in pursuing. You know, people don't tend to spend eight years of university to try and get in some sort of hard labor situation. <laughs> it's, there's like some people are cut out for hard labor. Some people are cut out for sitting with books. I'm more of a book type person. And so... 
this really seemed one of the few ways that I would be able to suddenly get a, a quick crash course in gaffing. The reason why it's so important to learn those sorts of tools is because you need to know what you want to be able to ask for it. Oh, yeah. And, and or that, recommend it. Man, G&E Truck has, the, the nicknames are long and confusing. And I mean, they're built, part of it is to like divide, you know, to confuse, to, to be an, in, an inner circle scenario. Mm-hmm. So you spent time learning all those yeah. things? So I spent the entire film when I wasn't doing my job asking him questions and listening to their channel. Um, oh, that's fascinating. You, yeah. you like you drop you eavesdropped on their radio channel? I eavesdropped on their radio channel. That way I could I could That's he- a neat trick. Yeah. I could hear what he was directing his G and E team to do, and then I would watch who of that team was responsible for different jobs. Huh. I think the most important thing when you're working in any field is to learn every job of the people who work in that field. Yeah. And the more you know what people do, the better understanding you'll have as it. And as a producer, that has been invaluable. Yeah. No, that's really cool. And I mean, that brings me to the next like section that I wanted to talk about is that you are... I, I, transitioning is probably the wrong word, but you're, you're starting to do directing. Yeah. I definitely don't want it to be seen as transitioning because I consider myself to just be capable of multiple roles on a film I set. I understand. Yeah. yeah. No, we're all in that same... You, you are a production designer for people and you're you're directing your own ideas that's right basically i'm directing this film called the gateway bug it's a documentary on global food security and the edible insect industry it's a real passion project i was shooting a film as a production designer out in la january february of 2015 and while i was out there i just went and met some a guy for a coffee and he told me a friend of a friend type situation and he told cameron and i the other person creating this film about what he was studying, which was an eco-entrepreneurship program. Long story short, we learned all this stuff. We realized we had to make a feature film about it. If we didn't know it, heaps of people didn't know about it. You know, I think the best way to invoke change anywhere is through education. And I think people these days would much rather sit down and watch a film than sit down and read a a long essay or article or book, unfortunately, (laughs) I think. But be that as it may, you know, I'm very much involved in this filmmaking process in, you know, all the different aspects that it provides and all the different avenues you can go down. So not just feature films, but, you know, we've shot so much of this film now that we have footage to make a bunch of short films, to make an educational package, to make webisodes. Correct. Yeah. I mean, when were you looking to like helm projects of your own from a director position prior? No, I wasn't actually. I... I think I spoke already about the TV show I wrote and the the narrative feature I wrote. Really, both of them were very much written as a writer production designer. I'm not even kidding. The reason why I like writing these is because to me, I see all of the things at once. If that makes any sense. So when no, I'm, it's funny, you can when you're right when you're reading something written by someone that works in, in in the industry from a from their from a different department, you can sometimes tell what department. Yeah, for sure. So when we started making this project, I, Cameron and I were just interested in creating the project. Neither of us thought that we had any particular role. But as the two of us set about making this, our roles sort of emerged. So I also have a bad habit of first ADing on set. 
it's not ideal for a production designer, but I have a very military sense of time on a film set. Yeah. And if I feel like things are maybe slowing or we're going to lose a you shot, crack a whip. I crack a whip. And it's been brought to my attention because of this skill that perhaps ADing and directing would be something that would be right up my alley. And so as Cameron and I said about making this film, he was the DP, you know, he was camera operating. And so it just kind of fell to me to start directing. And I'm a production designer, so an art director. So I would be setting up the shot and then I would be positioning the person. After a while, you realize, oh, I'm, I'm directing this film. And then... Well, yeah, no, the G word is an art director as well. Exactly, exactly. So visually I was directing it and then I just had feedback because I conduct the interviews as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So then I would just have feedback for the people and I just, I feel like it really organically grew. And then even in the editing process, again, like Cameron's in the editing suite day in, day out, and then I'll, I'll be giving feedback. I'm researching all the archival. So our film's very influenced by the works of Adam Curtis. I'm not sure if you know him. He's done some great films like Bitter Lake and he can you can find all his stuff online. But he pretty much creates entire feature films purely out of BBC archival footage. Mm. I think it's a great technique and really talks to our educative type movie that we're making. Right. We're talking about concepts that have shifted drastically over the last 50 years as the industrialized world has become embroiled in this global warming problem we have. I think that showing people they're not to blame is is part of what we need to do for people to not feel guilty and just actually start actioning good things. I agree with that. So we're sharing archival that shows how government, the US government in particular, <laughs> represented a certain lifestyle that has turned out to not be ideal for people or the planet. Right. Has this experience impacted your work elsewhere in terms of what knowledge that you've gained about things in a more holistic manner? Has it has it brought in a certain level of, not enlightenment, but new perspective to your production design? Not necessarily the production design, but it's completely honed my ability to consider the edit while shooting, which never occurred to me. That's a big one. That's a big one, especially for a director. And now in terms of production design, I guess the biggest thing I that's come to my attention is the lack of coverage that I feel DPs and directors tend to get. You know, you go to all this effort to create a set, you've you've shot listed every shot that's pertinent to the script, but a lot of the story, as I was saying, is, is creating the world and making that world real. Yeah. And in the real world, there are lots of little telltale signs that give away a lot about the character. But in terms of showing those telltale signs on screen, you actually have to shoot them. So it means putting aside a bit of your shoot day to shoot objects, not actors, to establish scenes. Yeah, coverage is a balance. Like it, it, it can, knowing the right amount, I think is an art form, you know, like how much do you need to tell the audience? How much should you not like how much see say versus letting other aspects of the filmmaking guide them? It's, it's, it's a tough nut to crack, but it's like, that's, that is the um, art department plight. I think it's a tough nut to crack, but get the coverage and let the editor decide. <laughs> you know what I mean? And here's the, uh, the, the, the DP art director conversation on set. It's like, listen, shoot it. I'm not sure we need to shoot it. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That's, that's, yeah. And so what, what, at what stage do you feel like the, this documentary is at right now? Oh, we're very heavy in post. We've got a rough cut being roughly cut. Yeah. Do you see the end? Do you see light at the end of the tunnel at this point? Absolutely. I actually spent last night going over the festival, film festival applications and the sorts of 
festivals we want to get into and why on how that would be helpful to us. And I think when you start being able to look at that, your, you feel, po- your post is going well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also, like most documentary makers, have a challenge in stopping shooting. <laughs> well, that's the problem when you're not shooting with a script. And opportunities start to present themselves. Yeah. And they, they might change your, your film or the narrative or the ending. Absolutely. And when we set out to make this film, we were inspired by the opportunity to knowledge share on sort of the, the things that we should be thinking about. It really transformed during the, the making of it from being entirely focused on the edible insect industry to being focused on global warming and food production and strategies for food supply well you can't yeah you can't talk about the the micro story without talking about that macro right things that are affecting it it's impossible right and so you're doing it right yeah so the film sort of just expanded and when the film expands like that then suddenly more and more you know high up people become more and more interested interested yeah and so we've really benefited from taking our time in shooting these things because it means we've gotten to go to Washington and talk to the head of NIFA at the USDA it means we got to talk to you know people at the United Nations and the Food and Agricultural Organization and we've had access to a lot of people that a lot of people don't get access to based on our academic sort of practice of thoroughly researching the topic and garnering respect from doing so I think yeah and it is this it's a catch-22 in a sense that now that you have something that you can send to people that are that need convincing because they have a name and they are aware of that fact once you show it to them and they are now interested in being a part of it them being a part of it changes what you've made (laughs) yeah and it's this it's a it's a it's worth the effort but it's a lot of effort yeah it really is a lot of effort I think back to the naive first brunch where we learned about the topic and decided by the end of brunch that we're going to make a documentary feature film and I just laugh like that I honestly thought we were going to be able to shoot it, edit it, and have it finished within 12 months. Like, no, no. and everybody, you're climbing, you're climbing Everest. Yeah, and everybody told me, no, that's not how it happens. I mean, the <laughs> um, making a murderer, 10 yeah. years they shot that for. Well, 10 years they shot. That's insane. Everybody just constantly referred to films that I love, documentary style films that I love, and gave me a year, like five years. This film, three years. This film, eight years. But, you know, I think... How long has it been for you? So far, we started February 2015, so almost a year and a half, and we're almost finished the film. A lot of people said it was going to be impossible, and a lot of people are naysayers, and I just want to tell people, whoever's giving you negative feedback, don't listen to them. Everybody, you know, has their own opinion of stuff, and unless somebody's helping you be more productive or better at your job, it's not useful. If I had listened to the at least 50% of people who told me that coming to America was a stupid idea, I, I never would have come. And if I, if you listen to people that naysay, you really, it's hard to get anything done, I think. Yeah, and I mean, I, I did want to touch on, in the email that you sent inquiring about coming on, off the bat saying, you know, I'm a female in filmmaking, and would you want to include that more in your, in your podcast? Because it's something where... I find it almost seems silly to say I'm a feminist because it's more like I respect people. It's like a ridiculous thing that you have to clarify. But it's at a point where I don't know if it's even like I don't ask the men, how is it? How is it being a man in the industry? But then it, that does seem like a, a fair question sometimes to women 
but you brought it up, so I feel comfortable talking about it with you. Like, how has that aspect of, of your, how has it affected? And like, can you talk about that in the way that you can see where that was a factor versus Absolutely. a litany of other things that I'm sure are factors in, in anyone's life? Absolutely. I think that it is completely phenomenal, the disparity in women directors versus men directors who are being supported in this industry. I think it's undeniable that there is a problem here, a really, really, really big problem with sexism in the industry. As we all know, it's not just... How how has it affected you personally? Personally, I can give an example from today, in fact. Uh, Recently, I was went in for an interview with a big, huge television channel, very successful, to work on a big, huge, successful television show, production design. The interview went great. By the end of it, the guy was my best friend. He said that he would very much... He was very much looking forward to working with me and, you know... Everything seemed to be wonderful. He said, I love your style. You've got more than enough experience to do the job. Today, I discovered that instead of hiring me, they hired a male who has never designed a feature film, who has never designed a TV show, and whose experience is purely based in PA work. They hired him to be the production designer. Is there any chance that it was a budget thing? No, they they told us what the salary would be. They didn't ask us to put rates in because it's an established show. They have an established salary for that role. And I mean, there there are questions you could ask why, but as a woman, I don't need to. (laughs) I've been through this enough to know how this game plays and it's really disappointing. And now I'm put in this awkward position because obviously I thoroughly researched the guy to make sure I wasn't missing anything. People have their folios and their credits online these days. It's not that hard to see someone's experience. Now I'm in this awkward position. Do I confront this hirer and say, why did you hire somebody that if I was working a job, I would not be confident in hiring as a PA on my... Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. The, no, it's, a, it's an awkward conversation. Yeah. And I'm obviously not going to have it because it's not going to behoove me well because no. if another job comes up in the future... Exactly. So, well, it's that fear that I think stops the conversation from happening at, in the way or the level that it probably should. And I'm just, I'm honestly really sick of going to interviews, having people say, I think you're overqualified for this, and they're not hiring. Do you know what I mean? If I'm overqualified, then clearly I would do the job well. Do you have um, fellow female collaborators that you like discuss this with? What's that conversation like? I mean, honestly, we try not to discuss it that much. It's frustrating being oppressed, and there's nothing empowering about complaining about the different ways pe- you've been oppressed that day. I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do. I can imagine. Yeah, I do. Well, I can't, but I, I, I know what you mean. I do like working with female crew members. I often find when I'm working on a crew with some females, I've never worked on a primarily female crew, mm. but I have worked on crews that I think are pretty close to fair like a fair split split and that was with friends of people that I already respected so I wouldn't have expected anything less from them and their hiring policies but I find that seeing that crew you know you get to a job first day you see who you're going to work with when you see a bunch of females you know that it's going to be a pretty all right shoot when you see only males and the only females are in the art department or doing hair and makeup I'm, I know there's going to be some issues because what that says is the, the person running this show mm. isn't thinking the same way I am. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, the sets that have more women on it, I tend to, I think that there's also, there's, yeah, the, the, the vibe on, on, on set tends to be better 
what I there's think a it, balance. It comes from a respect from craft. What that usually shows is that people's abilities have been assessed and the best ability person chosen. Yeah. And when you don't see that, then I find it very hard to believe that there weren't as many female applicants to that role. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Like I, I openly, I don't know where to take this conversation mm-hmm. aspect of it. I don't, it's not something I think about it all the time. I read about it all the time. Like you hear about, you know, pay discrepancy on, on sets and things. And I just don't know what to do well, in terms I, of the conversation. Like, where does it go now? I don't know. I had a pretty funny revelation this morning, which is, do you know who the most educated people in America are right now? Uh, the demographic of most educated people in America is black women. Now, that's interesting, right? That's there, definitely yeah. not how it's been in the past. And I decided or came to this revelation this morning that that's because People that are oppressed have to work twice as hard to get anywhere. Yeah, makes sense. I feel like I have worked twice as hard as any man in a similar position as me because, mm. like I just explained, like for some reason I didn't get hired for that TV show and somebody with way less experience did. Right. So when I get hired, I feel like I've really hard fought won that role. Yeah. And I've come to realize that this is sort of – across the board. So when you're seeing these glass ceilings and you're seeing there's no women directors, there's no women CEOs, as you start to see this oppressed people slowly overtaking the oppressors in terms of education, these people are going to become more successful in any industry. And I think we're going to slowly see that potentially men from doing this have going to make themselves obsolete. If they're not working as hard and they don't have, I feel like women have the capability to work twice as hard because they have to. People won't. Well, I don't think that, I don't think that's gender specific. I think anybody in that position would learn those traits. Women in this example, being in that position, being forced to learn those traits. Yeah. But so I think ultimately if, if people continue down this path, I sort of see a, a real, real paradigm shift in my lifetime that I'm pretty excited about. Have you ex- experienced any of those positive things yet? <laughs> no, okay. not even close. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking like when I'm a grandma in my gotcha. wheelchair, I will be relishing all of the women in power type situation. Well, all right. It's it's interesting. I this is this will be the probably the fifteenth or sixteenth episode, and I tend to know how to take the conversation and where to where to steer it and where to go. This is more because it's commentary, really, because we're talking about something that is um, outside of ourselves. It's it's like this thing in the world that we are discussing versus your career. But anyway, that that was that was that conversation. Um, do you think that moving back to your career to finish up, do you think you'll ever move back home? Is that a desire of yours? Uh, my desires are plenty and very varied. I would very much like to divide my time between Melbourne and New York. I was just in New York uh, over, over the December festive period. I'm sorry, I was just in Melbourne over the yeah, festive yeah. period. And there are a couple of jobs that I would have loved to have done. Somebody offered me a job to design a record store, which is like right up my alley and a, and a few other things. It would take a fair amount of organization to sort of have a workload. I mean, you mentioned being bi-coastal, but being bi-global is just a whole other 
kettle of fish, but it's that's something that I would w- work towards. I think having lived in New York for going on five years, probably by the time I would consider leaving temporarily, yeah. that it would be difficult for me to enjoy all that I've enjoyed here in Melbourne just because it's so far away from so many other places. So in New York, when I get fed up with Americans, I can just <laughs> literally catch a bus or drive for 12 hours and I'm in Canada. Yeah. In Australia, when you get fed up with Australians, too bad. Yeah, you're 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 on an island, literally. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that being said, Melbourne has a lot to offer, as we were discussing. It's phenomenal. It is like Melbourne and New York are very similar. They have great people, really friendly, really smart, really switched on, doing really interesting things. I think they're both very future based. They're developing strategies for a wonderful future. So you're interested in going back. But you would have to be at the right time. Is that what I'm gathering? Listen, I'm a pretty work-driven person. I'll be honest, I'm a workaholic. You know what gets me places? Cool-sounding jobs. So if somebody in Melbourne said, hey, I've got a feature film, are you interested in production designing? I would love – I would jump on a plane the next day. I would love to do that. Just a place in general doesn't hold that much appeal for me. I've lived in Switzerland. I've lived in France. I've lived in America. The real appeal for me lies in what I can do in that place. Yeah. To finish up, how are you defining success for yourself right now? Well, I've always been ambitious in life. And at this stage, I think I'm going to say I'd like to have before moving on or changing anything production design 10 films, just because it's a nice round number. Every film I do, I see the skills developing so exponentially that I'm constantly embarrassed by past works or past concepts. That's a natural progression. So I'd like to go a few more and really refine the craft. You know, I mean, people like Wes Anderson, what a, what a hero, what an astounding human being. Yeah. I would like to be able to work enough to develop crafts to, to be more of an auteur. I just think that's such a treat of a job, you know, being able to write direct and essentially design and have very strong concepts in mind that are you're able to communicate to other people to create these wonderful films is hey look it's great like lofty goals like that that's that's fantastic well i'm only three away so it doesn't seem that lofty to me that's no 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 no, no. The oh 10, the, the wes anderson the, the, yeah no no 10 10 is in is in short range the the um the wes anderson uh right goal is you know that's a career long one but right. it's good to have And with this film that I'm directing and producing, The Gateway Bug, I really am involved in that in a much broader perspective. I'm I'm keen for that to actually have significant social impact, which requires quite a strategy in terms of rolling out where it gets seen, how it gets seen, how often it gets seen, when it gets seen. Yeah, that's a whole... Yeah, I think I'm I'm probably going to end up spending the latter half of this year learning about that and learning about distribution and those kinds of things that is not my area of expertise in the film world. And realistically, I'd really like to see that film huge. I'd like to see it blow up. If people <laughs> learn. <laughs> so you'd like success for the thing you've been working on for years. Yeah. Yeah, but really not in terms of my career. I want to no, no, see. I get it. Yeah, I want to see for the, audiences. For the sake of the story and the importance of the story. And, but that's, that's um, 
what documentaries are about. Right. Caring about changing about, the world. About your your topic so much. I mean, it's the only reason that anyone would put in so much blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so I'd like to see that take off in terms of what like I basically have a three three pronged approach. I have my design world, um, my design practice, which I just want to keep refining, which I think is on a great trajectory. I have the documentary, which I want to see progress in terms of having an impact on people's behavior on their everyday food choices. And then in terms of my personal career and where I'm sort of headed in the next few years is I'm hoping that based on the sort of success of that documentary and based on other successes that I could maybe begin making that narrative feature that I've written and then maybe the TV show... Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. It's it's the um, it's a long road. Staying staying hungry and working your ass off. Well, thanks for coming on. It's been um, it's been cool having someone that I ha- I don't know prior. Uh, the first of many. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me.